Did y'all like that? Yeah, that's pretty good stuff. It's a hard act to follow. But we're going to try. We're going to turn today. Our Easter text message comes from the Gospel of Luke. So if you have your Bible today, go ahead and open it up to Luke. We're going to turn into the 24th chapter. Actually, we're going to read the tail end of chapter 23 in the very beginning of chapter 24. So I'll give you some time to find that as we turn to that, mostly because in the Gospel of Luke, I like his wording of how he begins to put together Luke's record then of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So we're going to read that text in just a few moments. But before we read the text, I want to ask you to do something. I want us to try our very best that we can. I, I know this is hard to do, but I want the very best we can to try to imagine ourselves being there in that particular day and time, that week, when Jesus began to suffer as we know he did and only can read about and really can't honestly even picture it in our minds, but we know he did. And I want us to try to place ourselves there. I mean, I want you to ask yourself, can I actually put myself at the scene and bear witness to everything that happened to him? Because on the particular week that we know is Passion Week, or the week in which he was suffer, a lot of things happened to our Lord. I mean, first of all, he was betrayed. He was arrested. And then subsequently taken to the Sanhedrin Council, where he was charged with blasphemy. At the same time, he was spit upon. Later, he was beaten. He was ridiculed. He was abandoned, even by those closest to him. He was flogged. We read about how he was flogged nearly to the point of death. He was mocked with the crown of thorns being placed upon his head. He was forced to carry a heavy wooden cross to Golgotha. And then agonizingly nailed to the cross, both his hands and his feet. And then he died a painful, humiliating death. He was crucified. Can we put ourselves at that scene? I think for many people today, we just can't. I mean, either, even though we want to try to put ourselves there over 2,000 years ago to the things that unfold in that particular week, we just can't place ourselves at that particular scene. I was thinking about this last week, putting the message together for today, and I even look into myself examining my life, and I'm thinking, why, why can't we actually put ourselves at the scene. And I begin to answer that. I mean, we live very comfortable, modern lives. So it's difficult for us to put ourselves at that scene. I mean, we, we honestly just can't relate to those days. Because we're very simply just many, many years removed from that violence and that cruelty that our Lord was subjected to. So we either can't place ourselves to the scene because we're comfortable living today, and it's a blessing that we can live that way, or we just don't want to try. And we find it extremely difficult. We have had the movie The Passion of the Christ to come, produced by Mel Gibson, to give us a little bit of a, a portrayal or a picture of some of the things that our Lord was subjected to. But even that, I mean, we see it, if we watched it, it's difficult to watch. I mean, I know people who actually have never watched the movie because 
of the extent that it has so much violence and so much cruelty and brutality placed upon our Lord. I mean, the pain inflicted upon Jesus is actually very hard to watch. And they can understand in how they've not been able to watch the movie. I mean, consider the point that even, even though all the disciples were there, when all these things began to unfold upon passion, when all these things took place. But here is the thing that we have to know. Even though it may be difficult to imagine ourselves at the scene, or even though we may find it hard to watch a movie portraying the harsh treatment and the cruelty placed upon our Lord, that does not diminish the fact that it happened. I mean, it really happened. And while we can't fathom the beating or the painful death, the crucifixion, while we can't actually picture that necessarily in our mind or place itself there, we need to recognize ultimately we are blessed, if I should say it that way, as a result. It's our Lord has risen, and we are blessed to be a follower of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. While Passion Week was brutal, today is a day in which we can celebrate and rejoice. And when we are blessed, that Jesus willingly went and took our place on the cross at Calvary. I mean, Jesus was an innocent man. He had no charge against him, truly. I mean, but he took the beating, the mocking, the ridicule, the death he took upon the cross that should have been us. Yes, it really happened. The events of Passion Week are real. It truly happened, even if we or the world in which we're living tries to pretend it did not and it is fiction. It is all true. Jesus came. He lived among us. He died. He was buried and he rose. Our Lord has risen. Amen. Our Lord has risen. And we can celebrate that truth today. Now, as I mentioned, our Easter text today is found in the Gospel of Luke. Hopefully, we'll be able to turn there by now. We're going to be in the 23rd chapter. We're going to read a latter portion of the 23rd chapter. And in six verses, we're going into chapter 24. And I choose this record because Luke now gives us what we need to receive about the death, the burial, and the resurrection, all three together within these verses. So stand with me this morning as we do to simply honor the word if you're able to. And here's what Luke is recording in the 23rd and the 24th chapter pertaining to the death, the burial, and the resurrection, the real events that occurred so many years ago. Luke chapter 23, verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. You know, the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all of his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now verse 50. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action. 
and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid, it, laid him on a tomb cut in stone, where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. Now chapter 24, verse 1. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found a stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Father, Lord, we read this text today for perhaps a better understanding of the death and the burial and the resurrection. But Lord, we also read it so you can speak to us today through the Holy Spirit about how we should look upon these events. Even though the world may want to not want to count these things as real, we look upon them as believers, as followers, thinking these real events took place, which led ultimately to the sacrifice that was made for all of us on that cross. And then Jesus, as he died, was buried, placed into a tomb. And today, Lord, we celebrate and rejoice knowing that you have risen. So, Lord, we, today we just take this message and place it in our hearts, begin to better understand the events that unfolded, and just be thankful for how you took our place and how you give us the hope of the resurrection. So thank you, Lord. Thank you so much. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as we somewhat alluded to in the introduction, I want to emphasize today that these things that took place that we just now read about and that we've maybe heard before, these events are real. They are not make-believe. It is not fiction. It is not a product of disciples' imagination. They are real. Each and everything we read in the Scriptures pertaining to the death, the burial, and the resurrection is completely true. It is real. It happened. Now concerning Luke's record of the death, burial, and resurrection, author and scholar N.T. Wright states this, as we're saying this morning, it really happened. It was not a mistake. We did not get it wrong. It's true. You can rely on it. This is the main emphasis of Luke's account of Jesus' death and burial. He began his book by telling Theophilus that he could rely on these facts. And now that the most vital one is before us, he presents his witnesses one by one. The centurion saw what happened and made his comment. The crowd standing by saw what happened and went home shocked and sad. Jesus' followers not least the women, were standing at some distance, but they too saw what happened. Then the burial. Again, the women saw what happened and how the body was laid out. It's evidence. There's eyewitnesses. This is what Luke promised, the facts. And this is what he's now giving us. I borrow those words of N.T. Wright because it concurs with what you already mentioned this morning, that the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is real. 
But also, if you look upon his words rather interestingly, as you go back now to Luke's record of his Jesus' death, it's not just the fact that he's recording the death and burial that he is mostly interested in. I mean, he also equally points out for us that Jesus died as an innocent, righteous man. Look with me in verse 47. The centurion, the first to make the comment, I mean, he saw what had taken place, and he then says, as he's praising God, as he sees the things unfold, he actually makes a statement, certainly, this man was innocent. Emphasizing the fact that Jesus was perfect in every possible way, without blemish, without sin. Now, Mark's gospel, the centurion in charge of execution squad, declares Jesus was really God's son. You see that in Mark 15, 39. Slightly wording different. But whatever gospel you want to choose to be able to read from, both are actually stating for us very important information. Yes, he was God's son. And yes, he was innocent. I mean, Luke's comment here is just equally positive, but slandered really in a different direction than Mark. I mean, both are correct. But Luke emphasizes Jesus' innocence. He was really innocent. He was in the right, which then means that he was a victim, not a villain. And he did not deserve to die. He was innocent. If anyone should have been there, we've already said that this morning, it should have been one of us. It should not have been Jesus. He was innocent. He did not deserve to die. So the question really becomes then, well, why did he die? I mean, if Jesus was innocent and did not deserve to die, then why did Jesus have to die? And the answer then that maybe we already know is that he had to die in order for us to live. Jesus willingly gave his life so that our life could be saved. In essence, he was the perfect sacrifice that reconciled our sinful, rebellious life to a holy God. And it's truly amazing. It's an unfathomable sacrifice that took place. Last week, we looked in the Gospel of John as we finished our examination of the I Am statements and found in John chapter 15 that Jesus spoke to his disciples about remaining in him. We better word it actually is to abide in him. In fact, we find in John 15, 5, we said, I am the vine, you are the branches, abide in me. But he also told him in that same passage a little bit further in John chapter 15, verse 13, he said, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. So yes, Jesus amazingly, astonishingly, he laid down his life for you and for me and for all of mankind. All of us so we could live. Which, in a way, makes him the ultimate organ donor. Now, perhaps you're fully aware of what it takes to become an organ donor. I mean, this procedure or steps for an organ donor is not overly complicated. I am one of those people who chose to be an organ donor in case something happens to me. But Google states how you become an organ donor by three simple and uncomplicated steps. Number one. Simply register with your state's organ donor registry. 
Number two, select yes to organ donation when you apply for your driver's license. And number three, sign a donor card if it's available. And that's it. Sounds rather simple, doesn't it? To become an organ donor. But in the process for donating an organ, of those steps to review, one thing is missing. And perhaps it's not listed as a step because it would be stating the obvious. Or, or maybe it's because it would seem too harsh to list it as a step. But it's easy signing yes to becoming a donor on the dotted line when you get your driver's license. There's one more thing that has to happen before someone can use your organs. And maybe it is the hardest step of any. What is that step? You have to die. In order for someone to use a part of your body as an organ donor, ultimately, you have to die. And the final step for someone to live is that you first must die. Now, I know there's other ways to be able to donate organs, but in the ultimate scenario, when you die, somebody can get your organs if you're an organ donor. Someone has to die for someone to live. Someone has to die for someone to live. And that is precisely what Jesus did for every one of us. He laid down his life so we may have life and have it abundantly forever, eternally, with our Heavenly Father. Listen, Jesus laid down his life for you and for me so that we could live forever, eternally, with our Heavenly Father. And as we say that, it's really, as we're believers, it's not truly hard for us to comprehend that sacrifice because it's not the first time we've heard this. But this is so hard for the world to understand. Because the world begins to process this and think, I mean, who does that sort of thing? I mean, it's beyond human comprehension that someone would truly take a sacrifice the way even that Jesus did and lay down his life for someone he didn't even know. I mean, we've mentioned in messages before how maybe, maybe we would do that for our children. Or maybe a very, very special friend. But we can't honestly say perhaps that we do that for a co-worker or a neighbor, not probably a stranger, and never an enemy, right? I mean, would we actually lay our life down for someone who spit upon us, who beat us, who flogged us to near death? Would we actually lay our life down for that person who beat us to that particular condition? I don't know if we can say we can or we would. And we would never perhaps ever say we would sacrifice our life for our enemy. On the website, I am second, Chris Plinkenpaul tells the story when he was deployed to Iraq and put in command over 100 soldiers. A couple of months after Chris was deployed, he says on the website that he finds himself in a sandbox. And suddenly, as he finds himself there, a massive explosion erupts about a quarter mile away. He grabs his M4 carbine, carbine rifle. 
his 9mm pistol, he grabs his flak vest, puts it on, and climbs aboard one of his company's tanks and begins to arrive towards the scene where they saw the explosion in the distance. And they arrive to the scene and they started looking through houses, searching from one house to another. As they're searching the houses, suddenly a terrorist and a car bomb runs into one of his company's uh, tanks. But as the terrorist with the car bomb runs into one of the tanks, somehow it didn't detonate. It did not explode. But the force was so brutal running into the tank that the car, the terrorist driving it, was knocked unconscious. Now, as the car then ran into the tank, it happens to be that the fuel tank began to leak. And the impact from the crash ignited in the fuel tank, and the car began to get engulfed in flames. Chris says the heat, probably from what was happening, took the terrorist by surprise, and he actually woke up. And Chris is standing back watching all these events unfold, and he says on his site for just a moment, he says, I recognize, I recognize for a moment I could save him from the flames, from his possible death. But he said, I wasn't that kind of a Christian. He said, I wasn't that good of a Christian. And while professing Christian, Chris actually says he could not make that sacrifice for his enemy. He could not lay down his life for his enemy. And that's the way it seems to be in life. We, we think that we could actually make a sacrifice for those we love, and perhaps when it comes to it, we might be able to. For so many people, though, we would not make that sacrifice to give our life so that someone could live. I mean, the mere thought of someone laying down their life to people in this world is ludicrous. So much so that people in the world today discount the sacrifice as simply fiction. Just something not real. But as we have duly noted here this morning, it is real. It did happen. It's a sacrifice in which we gain from it. But as I bored then on being repetitious through the fact that this was real, it happened, it is true, I think it's interesting that the people who actually witnessed these things unfold that we can read about with the death and the burial could also be labeled then as, I don't really think it could happen. Look again at the text. We go back to chapter 24. He has died. He said that it's finished. Chapter 24, verse 1 then says, on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they, the women particularly, now are going to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. They found a stone rolled away from the tomb. But they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. As they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. There's the facts. Okay, look. Have you ever noticed it sometimes seems impossible for people to believe something they've been told is going to happen? 
And this is certainly the case with Jesus' followers. Meaning that Jesus had talked about the fact that he must die. This is not the first time that people were hearing this. He had told them before he must die and be resurrected to life again. But his followers either didn't listen or failed to understand. I mean, in Luke's gospel himself, he records in chapter 9 and verse 22, the Son of Man, Jesus speaking, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And that seems pretty direct. You would think that the people closest to him, following him, giving up everything they had to be following him, in fact, they would certainly hear this understand this, and maybe remember it later. But Luke just didn't say it once, written in his gospel, the Lord's of our Savior. Two of the greatest stories. Jesus had parables, but they also allude to a very strong reference of rising from the dead. In the prodigal son in Luke 15, towards the very end, he says, for this my son was dead and is alive again. Verse 32 is somewhat repeated. For this your brother was dead and is alive. There's also the parable written in the Gospel of Luke about the rich man and Lazarus. When Jesus tells the rich man, begging for someone to go to his brothers, his five brothers in fact, so they could avoid the misery and torment in hell, they want someone to visit them to keep them from experiencing that, Jesus tells the rich man in Luke 16.31, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So then while these may be references through a parable to the future death and resurrection, it seems that nobody had heard it or nobody was listening or they just failed to understand. So now the question in my mind, perhaps yours then, is why didn't the people, why didn't those closest Listen, why didn't they understand? And the fact then is this, that they were simply puzzled. I mean, they were understandably so. I mean, resurrection in that world in that day was what God would do in the end for all the righteous dead. I mean, giving new bodies to people like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and even the most recent martyrs. I mean, you may even recall, if you know the gospel well in, in John, you know that there was a moment in John chapter 11 when Mary and Martha asked for Jesus to come because their brother Lazarus is dying. And as he dies then, Jesus eventually comes to Mary and to Martha. If Jesus tries to comfort Martha by telling her, your brother will rise again. But Martha's response indicates the people's understanding of the fact that only applied to resurrection only applied to people who were martyrs or who had died at a certain point in life that was worthy to come back. Because she tells him in John 11, 24, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection the last day. Not thinking remotely possible at that particular time. So with all that, then we shouldn't be surprised then of how they were perplexed and how they were confused on that very first Easter morning. I mean, why didn't they understand? Why didn't they listen? I mean, it wasn't just a lack of faith that had stopped them from understanding what Jesus had said in Galilee about his rising. 
It was just simply that nobody had ever dreamed that one single living person would be killed stone dead and then later, three days later, be raised to a new sort of body life while the rest of the world was just happening, going about their regular business. No one thought that was possible, even though he had told them of what shall occur and what to expect. And we see evidence from that. I mean, it's not speculation. I mean, notice we go back to the text once more, the passage we just read, but the women, obviously, they were not expecting it. They were not expecting Jesus' body in the tomb as they have been, they expected just exactly had been placed. They had seen the body being placed in the tomb. So when they go back, evidence tells us, according to the scriptures in chapter 24, they're expecting him to be there. They arose that early that Sunday morning. They have their spices in hand. And they were not going to the tomb saying to themselves, well, we got our spices in case he's still dead, but we hope he's alive. They just counted him being there when they got there. I mean, sure, they knew that someone dead stayed dead. They weren't expecting it. Well, I think, okay, discount the women. What about the disciples? Were they expecting it? No. Not really. I mean, the women actually went to the tomb to anoint the body, but the disciples, I mean, yeah, they, they weren't expecting it. They were still locked in the upper room taking cover in case someone was looking for them to give them the same thing that happened to Jesus. So it's safe to say then that the 11 or the 12 without Judas certainly were not expecting it either. In fact, if Luke had been making the story up a generation or so later, as people sometimes suggest, he would not have ever suggested that the women went to the tomb to find the body and to see the stone rolled away, because women were not credible witnesses back in that day. He would have had the men to be able to see it for themselves and make record so that everybody would understand and follow truly what happened. But that's not the way Luke records it. He recorded that the women went, expecting the body to still be there. And disciples were scared and hidden in safety. So then the opening mood then of Easter morning, even among the people who actually witnessed the death and the burial, is one of surprise, astonishment, fear, and confusion. Yes, Jesus did say something like this would occur. But it's obvious then and even now people failed to understand it. And so it seems that anything society today fails to understand, it is quickly dismissed. And if they can't understand it, can't rationalize it, can't explain it, it's just fiction, it's just make-believe, it's a fairy tale. It did not happen. I mean, our world seems to only believe what senses can tell them is real. If you can't touch it, smell it, see it, taste it, or hear it, it is not real. But I'm here to tell you this morning that we have to believe it is real. The life, death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ really happened. 
it is true. No, we can't masterfully explain it and understand the phenomenon of it all. We haven't seen, we haven't heard, we haven't touched Jesus. But unlike Thomas, we must exercise and live by faith. We understand that the resurrection is a key element in Christianity. I mean, think about this. How can you ever call yourself a Christian if you do not believe in the resurrection? It's vital. As much as the virgin birth, it's vital. It's a key element in calling yourself a Christian to believe in the resurrection. That Jesus conquered death and has risen again. Yes, you must believe. We must believe. In the world that wants to tell us it is not true, we must believe. It is real. It happened. In fact, you later can read in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul records that many people have witnessed, over 500 people have seen the risen Lord. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, it's that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And then he appeared to Cephas, which is Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom at that time were still alive. So there's evidence. There's eyewitnesses. As we can read the scriptures, we know it to be true. But we also recognize how that was then and this is now that many years have passed. And even further, the world, nor even any of us, have ever met these witnesses personally. And then we may tend to, especially the world, to discount it as just some neat, cool, wonderful story. But as we emphasize here this morning, it is real. The death, burial, resurrection, really happened, it is true. And the events that actually happened that we focus upon today, all three of them collected together, the death, burial, resurrection, provides us as believers, particularly the resurrection that we have the hope to sustain us in a world of unbelievers. It simply then is true. It's then a day to celebrate. It's a day to rejoice. Jesus Christ has risen. He has risen. He has conquered death. He has risen. Truly, he has risen. And it gives us reason to celebrate. So what I'm saying here this morning is the fact that it's true, it really happened, is the fact that we need to do everything we do today but stop and recognize the reality of it all and recognize this day for what it is. And even reflect upon the events leading to this day. We should stop, pause, and reflect, and recognize this day as it is. You may say, well, that's rather obvious, preacher. I mean, the fact that you're emphasizing today that it happened, and now we've actually spent a couple hours here, and we're here together. I mean, we're stopping and recognizing that this has happened, that it's true. But is it so easy? I mean, is it so obvious that we stop and recognize? Because recognize that while we're here, while we're here this morning together to hear this particular message, there's other people across the city 
into the county, into the state, into the country, into the world, not recognizing it. They're discounting it completely. And looking then, this day has no special meaning at all. It's just another Sunday. To them, it's just another Sunday. It's just another day. So inevitably, there's going to be people now or later that would just go on about their ordinary day, not stopping to recognize the sacrifice or to honor it anyway. There may be people right now golfing, or there may be people mowing their yard as we speak. Later, maybe people shopping, whatever. Not ever taking a moment to stop and recognize the sacrifice in the day and to honor it. Let me say this, those things are not bad in themselves. I mean, later today, I hope you do get to do some of those things. But first, we must recognize that sacrifice. Because if those things become our priority, then we're not honoring Him at all. We're actually making those things our Lord, rather than the true Lord who made our sacrifice for us. Who suffered that particular week? Who was crucified? Who was buried? But then came back to life. So simply take a moment today, maybe besides the moment you're in now, and just later today, as you get ready to have any kind of activity, it's a beautiful day, go out and enjoy it. But take a moment to honor that sacrifice. To notice this is a special day. It is resurrection day. It has meaning. It has significance. It is a vital element of our Christianity, of our faith. So in closing, just exercise your faith today. Believe in life after death. Believe certainly, even pro pro proclaim it loudly that Jesus has risen. Jesus has risen and that's the hope that we need because someday it gives us the hope and the clear indication that we too shall rise into a wonderful glorious body. Our Lord has risen. Amen. Our Lord has risen. Father, and we do take a moment, Lord, to reflect upon the sacrifice the death, the burial, the resurrection as we focus upon here today, Lord. We take a moment to reflect upon it and we pause now even of our service, even our busy lives. Lord, our lives are so busy. They're so full of activity. But Lord, let us just stop and pause and reflect. If anything that may be going on in our mind or heart and recognize that there's a special meaning about this day. There was a sacrifice that was made for all of us. That Jesus took that beating. He, he died on the cross for all of us. And he's come back to life, Lord. He, he, he lives again. And he can live in us if we allow it. Let us today, Lord, just truly reflect upon what this day means to us. For we've all of us today, and maybe even people listening later to the message, reflect, and then be joyful, and even celebrate the fact that you have risen. Today, 
we celebrate and we rejoice. In Jesus' name we pray.